Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael Bang-Peterson. Professor Peterson is a professor of political science at Aarhus University in Denmark, where he studies the psychological processes underlying human behaviour. He advised the Danish government during the COVID-19 pandemic and has written widely on the causes of and the policy responses to distrust, misinformation and political hostility, as well as writing, obviously, on science advice. So, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So it's an interesting continuum of interests you've got. The interface between uh, psychology and political science seems like a very hot topic at the moment. Did you start off as a psychologist who got into politics or as a political scientist who got into psychology? I, I very much started out as a political scientist who then became interested in, in psychology. And it was was when I was a master's student, I, I realized that we didn't actually have a, a very good grasp of how it is that, that people think about politics. Uh, so there are these sort of stylized models in political science that potentially people are like rational economic actors. You talk about the homo economicus in the scientific literature. So that's one side. There's also another stylized model called the homo sociologicus, focusing on on how it is that norms and so on uh, shape the way that we behave. But I thought, well, maybe we don't need these sort of stylized models. Maybe we should just talk about homo sapiens and actually figure out how it is that people really think. And, and that, that was why I ventured into psychology. Yeah, I mean, I never really reflected on it, but I suppose it, you do see a lot of economics influenced and, and game theory influenced stuff in political science. And uh, it does seem kind of odd when there's also, as you say, such a big body of actual psychological research we could be drawing on rather than abstracting everything as if we were like ideal rational agents. So bringing these two things together is something you're saying hasn't really been done. Yeah, not to a very large extent. So, so I, I became interested in this uh, intersection between psychology and, and political science in the early 2000s. And at that time, there was this sort of emerging focus on those uh, topics that I am now a part of. But it really happened in, in the early 2000s that political scientists began to think maybe, maybe we need to actually understand how it is that human think. Uh, rather than just uh, assume it on the basis of, for example, economic models. Mm. Okay, well, I'd like to dive into exactly that. Um, And I propose to start, as so many conversations do these days, with reflections on the COVID pandemic. Not because I want to focus on it exclusively. In fact, I hope not. But I think it's a good reference point for these issues of uh, using psychological insights in policymaking. So you were closely involved in advising politicians and policymakers during the pandemic, and you've also studied how that happened more generally. How was psychological research used in your experience? So I think that depends a lot on which specific country we are talking about. And I obviously have uh, have most experience with, uh, with the situation in, in Denmark, where I have been uh, highly involved in the advising uh, process. But if we look at this from a very broad perspective, then I think to a large extent that psychology has been underutilized. And I think perhaps the sort of clearest illustration of that uh, was the uh, outgoing director of the National Health Institute in the United States, who in late 2021 
said that, well, one of the problems uh, of the American response is exactly that they underinvested in studies on human behavior because it really doesn't matter that much that you can invent a, a vaccine with warp speed if you cannot get people to actually take the vaccine. Yeah, so do you think politicians know that they need psychological input, but they just don't get it? Uh, or do you think they just don't know that they need it and so they struggle? I, I, I think it's uh, a little bit of both. The, wh- one of the problems that I uh, at least have seen is that there is not a very good infrastructure uh, for delivering advice uh, from the social sciences and the psychological sciences into the policymaking process. Um, there has been a long tradition of uh, using uh, external input within uh, medical uh, decisions. So health authorities, they are very reliant on expertise from researchers in the health sciences. Uh, and that meant that they could very quickly be activated in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. My experience is also that economists, there is a, a sort of traditional infrastructure there for policymakers to receive uh, advice from economists. And, and I think maybe that's because uh, policymakers think of uh, economics as, as a real science, whereas uh, stuff like psychology, political science, sociology, like those soft things that focus on how it is that people behave, it's not really clear, perhaps, uh, to policymakers that that they need input on those because, well, we all know how people think and behave because we are uh, persons ourselves. But the point is that introspection is a very, very poor guide uh, to understanding how uh, people act uh, and especially how they act in the context of mass uh, societies. Uh, and, and therefore, I think they are underappreciating uh, the role of those kinds of sciences. One, one other challenge is that that when they have been relying in the past on, on psychological research or research from communication, then it's often done in the service of winning votes, winning elections. So it's kind of seen as a little bit of a dirty business where you can hire some consultants to give you advice on how to spin your policy proposals, how to frame your campaigns and so on. So it's, it's less seen as something that is benefiting the public or creating a public good and more seen as something that you need to be a little bit careful with talking too much about, but that you can use to sort of advance your own agendas. So I think both these things means that there is not a tradition of using uh, psychological and social sciences within the, the policymaking process, uh, as I think would have been ideal at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's very interesting. But don't those things kind of suggest contradictory perspectives? I mean, if politicians are willing to apply psychological insights in the so-called dirty work of winning support and winning votes, I mean whatever we think of that practice, doesn't it suggest they do recognize its its worth, its validity? And in that case, it seems strange to say that at the same time, they don't think it can be used in the honest work of policymaking. No, that's it's, uh, it's absolutely true that these things are sort of uh, a, a bit in contradiction, but they both pull in the same direction, and that is the underutilization of behavioral advice. And, and I think it is a complex discussion, understanding why 
why wasn't behavioral science uh, utilized more in the COVID-19 pandemic? Because from this perspective, uh, or at, at this point in time, it's, it seems so obvious it was also obvious to me uh, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, but I, I think everyone sort of realized the necessity of taking behavioral science seriously in the context of a crisis like the, like the pandemic now. Okay, so what's going on here? You'd think that politicians in a crisis situation would be casting about for any useful insights they can get their hands on. Yes, so I, I think there are these two reasons that I've already touched upon. Um, I also think that that one, one of the problems potentially was that, that the kinds of uh, psychological understandings that politicians already had at the beginning of the pandemic was not something that actually facilitated a very good response because there are features of psychological research that seems to have uh, had a pretty big impact on policymakers. And I'm in particular, thinking about uh, research related to uh, behavioral economics uh, and notching uh, theory, I think notching uh, as a paradigm is something that has had a pretty big impact on policymakers through the creation of behavioral insights teams uh, across the world. But one of the concerns that I have had is that that kind of research is something that at least in the way that is being digested uh, by policymakers or can be digested by policymakers is that it's actually hindering a good response in terms of, of communication during a crisis rather than the, the opposite. Because if I'm a politician who is uh, already a little bit fed up with, uh, with why the public won't uh, do as I ask them to do, uh, if I see a public that's not really interested in, in the basic facts, who don't really necessarily know that much about politics, then notching theory uh, and behavioral economics can sort of reinforce that impression that you have a public that is lazy, that are not really interested in engaging when it's necessary, and, and that might not even be able to react in a very sensible uh, way. The focus within behavioral economics is on cognitive biases and irrational responses to a very large extent. And, and the problem with that is that that means that you become motivated as a communicator to not really tell the complex truth, maybe not really tell the unpleasant truth because you are afraid that people won't be able to deal with it, that they will panic uh, and, and so on. And one of the things that I think you would uh, learn if you really listened uh, to to the psychological science and the social science on this is that it is incredibly important to be as transparent as possible during a crisis and that people do not react with panic but they react uh, with solidarity at least if the elites uh, keep their balance as well okay so so politicians are using a mixture of their own instincts and i guess rules of thumb based on introspection or common sense or like a fuzzy understanding of how people work, combined with bits and pieces that they've gleaned from certain not very useful bits of psychology. And that's their mental model of how the public functions. Yes, exactly. And one of the interesting things which I've only realized during this pandemic, and maybe it's weird to first realize it now, but there is in fact so little research on how it is that policymakers understand the public. 
because you could see it, it's essentially a research field in its own. Like what are the mental models that policymakers have of the public and how is it that those mental models actually shape the policies that they make? But essentially, we don't know, but it seems from what you can learn from public debate that there are some pretty deep misunderstandings of how the public actually responds in a crisis situation like this. And you mentioned a few of the ways you think the public does really behave in a crisis. By and large, people will be cooperative and act with solidarity. Would you want to expand a bit a bit more on the, on the reality that we know from psychological research? Yes, exactly that that if you have a crisis situation then the the modal response is solidarity with each other uh, and and also that if you have communication then what is really crucial is that the public does not feel that something is being hidden that transparency is of vital importance in order to foster uh, trust and that understanding is something that clashes with some intuitions at least that that you as a communicator cannot really reveal uncertainty that you cannot reveal doubt and that uncertainty and doubt is something that will lower the audience trust in you as a communicator but there's not really evidence for that kind of process what there is evidence of is that if you f- feel a lack of transparency then you decrease uh, your trust i find this really fascinating I mean, we saw during COVID-19 so many different styles of communication by different policymakers and by different scientific experts. And I can certainly see the point of being transparent, of not hiding stuff, because hiding stuff, like you say, breeds mistrust. And it also opens up space for all kinds of conspiracy theories and cynicism and suspicions and so on. But the other issue, it seems to me, has been a real problem in some areas, is lack of clarity in communication. Mm. So you've had complaints in some countries that I'm familiar with, like Belgium and the UK, complaints from everyone, politicians, scientists, the public, you name it, that there are so many different messages being presented by so many different quote-unquote authorities that either people didn't understand what they were supposed to do or the fact that everyone could kind of find a message that fit their preconceptions and reinforce their own worldview meant people didn't have to change their behavior too much. They just do what they thought they should be doing individually anyway. So my concern is that feeling the need for clarity, a communicator, be it a science advisor or a prime minister or whatever, is going to feel the pull of simplifying and glossing over uncertainty and presenting things as more straightforward and unambiguous than they really are. And the thinking might even be, okay, sure, I know one way to build trust is to be transparent, but another way is to hide the complexity so well that no one knows it's there. And that way we don't have to sacrifice clarity either. Yeah, no, I, I well, I, I'm in complete agreement with uh, what you're saying and I will, I'll, I'll elaborate uh, on, on that in a second, but, but I just want to uh, warn against th- this idea that you mentioned in the very end where you say, well, if we just hide it very, very well, they, they'll, they'll not know. I think that there is certainly a temptation to think like that, but I think this crisis have, has revealed again and again and again that that's not how it works. That if you have a very prolonged crisis, then anything you sort of put under the rock will eventually appear and create problems. But, but going back to, to the point about clarity of communication, I think that's another key lesson. And, and the good crisis communication is communication that can balance these two uh, things 
and essentially do it at the same time to reveal and disclose uncertainty while at the same time being extremely clear in what to do. And it seems like these things are in opposition to each other, but they're not necessarily in opposition to each other. And you can, in fact, do both at the same time because you need to describe what is the foundation for what I'm saying or for what my advice is. And that's where you need to get all the uncertainty out, all the dilemmas, all the trade-offs, all the unpleasantness. So in describing what what is the basis for what, what we're doing, but then you also need to show clear leadership and say, on the basis of this, what our best advice is, is to do X. And that's where you need to have the, the clarity. And of course, I can easily see the temptation of a leader and a communicator to think that, well, my advice will be more clear if I don't disclose all the, all the uncertainties. But the problem is that it's, it's based on the false premise that disclosing that uncertainty will reduce trust in you as an communicator with which the evidence suggests is, is not the case. And there is this fundamental danger that because of all the uncertainties, then a lot of the advice you will be giving will be wrong. Like that's, that's just the nature of things in, in a crisis. And if you haven't disclosed those uncertainties, then you will lose trust when it becomes clear to everyone uh, what you said was, was wrong. Yeah, which I think we have seen, right, very clearly during the evolution of the pandemic. Yes, there, there, there are many examples. Uh, I think uh, some of those examples about masks, a good example where a lot of health authorities reversed their, their views. There's a lot about uh, vaccines, both about that the vaccines will sort of put an immediate end to the pandemic, which was certainly not the case. Now in, in Denmark, there's a discussion about was it uh, wrong to uh, vaccinate children uh, below the age of uh, 11, where the Danish health authority have been out saying, yes, we shouldn't have done that during the Omicron wave. I, I know that other health authorities would not uh, necessarily agree that that was a mistake, but that's at least the judgment here in, in a Danish uh, context. So. The number of things that look like a good advice or a good way to communicate things at a certain point later showed up to not be the case. And you need to prepare for that. Like that's part of good crisis communication. All right. Very good. So you've talked about ways to preserve high levels of trust when, when trust comes under pressure in a crisis. I'm interested to know from your expertise whether there's also evidence about ways to build up trust when it starts at a lower level than than what you might want. Because I'm thinking like Denmark is classically a country like many of the Scandinavian countries where we see a high level of trust from citizens in their government and also in science. In a country where that's not the case or where it's less the case, does psychology tell us that we need to approach things differently? So that's that's a very important uh, question. And you are absolutely right that when I'm talking about these uh, things, then I, uh, in, in the Danish context, is a very privileged context. And, and I've been assessing the, the trust in the Danish health authorities throughout the pandemic. And, and uh, 95% of our participants have said that they have trust in the health authorities. So that makes their lives a lot easier than the lives of, uh, of many other uh, health authorities. The, the short answer to whether it makes a, a difference about how to communicate is that I don't think it does. 
but does it have effects for the effectiveness of the communication? Yes, it, it certainly does. But I don't think that there's an alternative because the the kind of transparent, honest communication is the only thing that you can, in fact, use to build up uh, trust or at least to not lose uh, trust, even more trust. At the same time, I must sort of confess that I'm that I'm not too optimistic about the possibilities of actually building trust during a crisis. I, I think the best way to think about it is that if you are a clever government, then you invest as much as you can in building trust during peacetime, and, and then you have what you have when, when things become problematic. And in a way, I think that the most fundamentally important job a politician has is exactly that to build public trust in the political institution because it's such a valuable resource. I don't think that it can be exaggerated how important trust is for how a society functions. It influences economic growth, it influences democratic participation, it influences even things like the happiness of the citizens. You are simply a more happy citizen if you walk the streets of a high trust country. So, so in that sense, it sort of touches everything in a uh, in a society and it's extremely difficult to build trust but if we look at denmark then 40 years ago denmark was actually not a very trusting society the the data comparative survey data on trust levels suggest that the levels of trust back then in the beginning of the 80s was at the level of united states today but what sort of created the increase in trust is, is first of all, high levels of equality, but also higher quality uh, political institutions. There, there's uh, pretty good evidence that it was the trust in the political institution that has been built over the last 40 years that sort of grow up social trust. So when, when citizens are interacting in, in the shadows of trustworthy institutions, then they also build trust in each other. Yeah, that's so interesting. It gives rise to all kinds of broader questions, uh, which I will resist. <laughs> Here's a, a different thought instead. So we've talked about different ways of achieving political objectives during an emergency, or let's say different candidate ways. We've talked about nudging and kind of subtlety. We've talked about openness and transparency. I suppose a third one is just plain old coercion, you know, talk softly and carry a big gun. And there's one more technique, which is very often floated in these conversations, which is dialogue with the community, citizen involvement, right? The dreaded, the dreaded buzzword of co-creation. Uh, I don't want to suggest that these are all in conflict with each other. Obviously, some can be combined, but they have very different emphases. My question is, is it unambiguously clear in your mind that the kind of approach you're advocating, the, the transparency one, is the one that's supported by the evidence? Because I worry that the economists and the behavioral scientists listening to this are going to be thinking, Wait, hang on a minute, our disciplines are evidence-based too. Come on. So where is the disagreement here in the academic fields between these different possible approaches? I, th I think it, it depends on the kind of situation that you are in. What nudging is uh, good at is reinforcing or sustaining already established habits. That's what it does is that it sort of is oriented towards making it as easy as possible to keep a particular behavioral pattern going. That's where the value of notching lies. 
but it's not effective in creating behavioral change because there, there you cannot sort of just subtly and gently nudge a person in a certain direction. There, there you need their full attention and, and you need to explain exactly why do you need to do something radically different than what you did before. And, and that's where the uh, communication approach is crucial. It's not just about communicating transparently and, and saying what you think. It's, it's also about being very explicit about what is the threat you're facing and then building what is in the literature called efficacy, namely being very, very specific about how is it that you can deal with the threat? What should you do? And how will that, in fact, help dealing with the threat that we are facing as a, as a society? So that's the focus of the health communication. And, and then in the sort of practical implementation of that, uh, then, then the whole partnership becomes extremely important. You, you cannot just rely on um, communication, doing press meetings and, and so on. You really need to make sure that all different communities are being engaged, that they get the information that they need, that they are interacting with role models that they trust uh, and, and so on. So, so there's a lot of partnership building uh, that is, is crucial in the, in the sort of implementation phase. But when you have the crisis, then you sort of need to shout it from the rooftops such that uh, everyone uh, hears. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose any partnership building you've previously done, like trust building, uh, will be of value because it's too late to do it on the spot when the crisis hits. Yes. One other thing I thought, you were saying about nudging being effective when you're sustaining existing behavior, but if you want dramatic behavior change, you really need people's full attention. Of course, another interesting feature of a crisis is that it's probably the only time that you, as a scientist or a politician, will really get full attention. You know, everyone's watching. If you're trying to reduce people's sugar intake or, I don't know, get them to take more exercise, you're never going to get their full attention because nobody else cares about those issues as much as you do and people have got better things to do, you know. But in a crisis, really, everyone's looking at you for leadership. It kind of stands to reason that the last thing that will work then is a, a sneaky, subtle nudge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's like what we need to understand when we understand human beings is that their underlying psychology changes a lot depending on the circumstances. When, when we are in a sort of routine kind of mode, then we are acting more like uh, behavioral economics uh, are saying, like then it is sort of an applicable model to the way our psychology works. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we don't have the potential to actually act with solidarity when facing a crisis and giving our full attention to complex information. It's mostly about what I'm criticizing, uh, the sort of uh, using notch theory as a general guide then, then it's mostly about finding out what are the particular situations where it's uh, applicable rather than policymakers thinking that this is something that is a general universal description of human nature, so to speak. Yeah, you've, you've laid out a very clear prescription for how things ought to be done. How can we change things to bring that about? Do you have uh, success stories of where this kind of insight has successfully been brought to bear on policymakers or... <laughs> failing that at least bright ideas <laughs> yeah so i think one of the things that we need to do is perhaps think a little different about uh, science advice and our role as science advisors 
often there is a sort of specific problem and then we provide uh, advice on how to deal with that problem like how to increase uh, vaccine uptake in certain areas for example uh, and then the then the policymakers or the health authorities they call in a bunch of advisors and then they ask well how should we deal with this and i think in part we need to as science advisors also meta communicate about the the policymakers understanding of the issue and and see these opportunities as not just sort of concrete problem solving but also as instances where we are in fact educating the policymakers about how to think in the correct manner about for example uh, citizens uh, and and so on so that communication is is not just going in the in the direction of the sort of specific problem at hand but also addressing the the underlying assumptions that are influencing the way that the policymakers are, are looking at the problem and and in that sense it science advice becomes more uh, like being in the classroom where we teach students about how to think about the world and and I think that's that's the kind of direction we also need to take science advice yeah I like that proposal though I, I wonder from a practical perspective I mean one thing that one often hears in these conversations is the value of science advice on demand right tailored to the political needs of the moment so you want you want pull not push you want policymakers to come to you with their question and then and then you know your answer has a guaranteed audience and a guaranteed impact and so on. I think, well, I mean, I think it's a brave science advisor who will be asked by a policymaker, how do we persuade people to accept this vaccine? And will reply, ah, actually, you're asking the wrong question. Let me teach you about how you should see the world. And it's not just about the awkwardness of giving that kind of reply, although it would be pretty awkward. It's also that you risk losing the audience. You know, the politician will just go away and find someone else who can give them a straight answer about getting more needles in more arms by Friday afternoon or whatever. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that the science advisor is not also addressing the, the sort of problem at hand. So I'm, I'm saying that you simply need to be aware of what is the mental models that the policymakers is operating on the basis of and when you sense that there is a mismatch between what we know from the science and those mental models, then you also need to address that. And, and of course, you can do it more or less elegantly, but I think it's an important part of it. Also, because what is really, really important is you need the, the policymakers to think in the most accurate way, not just about this problem, but also about the next problem. There's seldomly, at least that's my experience, there's seldomly a complete match between the, the, the exact uh, advice that you are giving and then the solution in, in the end. Things will always be changed in, in a large number of ways. You need to make sure that the policymaker understand what is the assumptions that is guiding your advice such that they can actually, when they're making all these tweaks to it and fit it to all kinds of political uh, considerations and so on that they can do it without losing the the sort of essence of it so so i think it's it it is crucial to uh to uh, think about uh, those things if you are actually making an an impact and then you can say well maybe maybe they get tired of you and they won't come back but that's that sort of um 
it also doesn't matter if they come back and you don't actually have an impact. Well, wise words. I guess that's very true. So at this point, I'd like to say a big thank you uh, to you, Professor Michael Bang-Peterson, for some really quite eye-opening insights. And I hope the work you're doing reaches beyond Denmark to our less enlightened shores in time for the next big emergency. Uh, Thanks again. Well, thank you very much. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it. <laughs> <laughs>